Well, amen, and good morning once again, church. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, uh, find your way to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. As you turn there, I want to remind you that we saw last week that the Father disciplines us to make us holy. So we've got to remember that God has a desire for our life, and His primary desire for our life is not our happiness, but our holiness. The, the lack of peace in our lives so often comes from flipping that order, believing that God wants to give us what we think would make us happy before making us holy. And when we mess up the order, we end up miserable and muddy in our lives. So God disciplines us because He loves us and He knows that real peace is found in running to Jesus. And to do that, we saw last week that we are commanded to strengthen those who are weak in the race, those who are, are about ready to give up, those who are weak need, who are hunched over in the race. We're to help them straighten up and remind them that they are running not for their glory, but for the glory of Christ. They're not running uh, just so that they can get attention, but so that they can spend their lives for getting people to focus on Christ. And so we straighten them up, and then we tell them to make straight paths and to walk in those paths, put one foot after the other in paths of righteousness as they make their way to Christ, their resurrected King. And then in verses 14 through 17, we get some more commands about how to run this race, how to run the race with endurance. So would you hear with me, beginning in verse 14, the word of the Lord. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Would you pray with me? God, help us to hear from heaven today. God, help us to apply ourselves to your word. Spirit of God, change us in the places we need to be changed today. God, we want, we want to magnify Christ. We want to glorify Christ. And Lord, uh, we can't do that apart from hearing your word, heeding your word, and we can't do those things unless you move us toward it. So Spirit of God, move, we pray. For the glory of Christ and in His name, amen. I want to show you three things from this passage this morning. To endure in the race, to keep on staying in the race. There's three things that we find in this text. We've got to pursue peace with one another and holiness in our lives. Secondly, we must watch over one another and be on guard against bitterness. And finally, we must refuse to trade the blessing of eternity for momentary personal pleasure in this life. First, we must pursue peace with one another and holiness in our lives. Hebrews shows us that running toward Jesus is not a solo sport. This is not an event that you run by yourself. It's a team effort. It happens in a local church where we are considering one another as more important 
than ourselves. It happens when we pursue peace. So the glory of Jesus who poured Himself out on the cross to give us peace with the Father would be on display to the watching world. We are to show in our lives what Jesus did with His life to give us peace. What did He do? He laid Himself down. So that others would be lifted up. That's how we pursue peace. And the reality is, in challenging times, whether it's program changes, whether it's persecution, or a pandemic, these things put our peace to the test. When when adversity comes, the people of God are commanded. Remember, Hebrews is written to people who are persecuted. And when the test comes, when adversity comes, the people of God are commanded not to run away from each other, but to run toward one another. The word pursue is the word that means to run swiftly toward someone or something. Which means the local church should be characterized by running to one another in pursuit of the peace of God. I, 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 I pray that the church in the United States in these days, in these times, when on social media and everywhere else, everybody's divided by everything, that the people of God would be characterized by the pursuit of peace. Pursue, interestingly enough, can have a wide range of meaning. It can be to run toward one another, to, to bless them and to embrace them, or it can mean to run toward someone for their harm. When Paul persecuted the church, this is the exact same word that is used. He pursued the church not to bless them, but to kill them. Think about that. Hebrews is written to a persecuted people. And a persecuted people are under great pressure to think only of themselves and what suits them and what would be to their advantage. But Hebrews says, instead of running away from one another... Keep on chasing down peace with everyone that you possibly can as vigorously as Paul used to chase down Christians before he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. Satan specializes in using difficult times, gossip, or our wandering thoughts to take our eyes off of Jesus and cause us to make enemies of others. But when we face pressure in the world for following Christ, we cannot resort to the world's tactics. Instead, we must, as Hebrews commands us, pursue peace. Jesus has said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be the sons of God. Matthew Smathurst recently said this, an immature Christian is hard to please and easy to offend. An immature Christian is hard to please and easy to offend. Are you a peacemaker or a problem maker? We pursue peace in the world by defending the truth in a Christ-like way. And in the church, we pursue peace with one another by being a Jesus-first people. Anchoring our lives in the gospel, remembering that Christ died for us, and understanding that He's commissioned us to die to ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters and the advance of the gospel. And by the way, as we do that, look what the second half of verse 14 says. He sanctifies us. He makes us more like God. Pursue peace and the sanctification that God will bring as you pursue peace. God sanctifies us as we bump into things 
that could drive us apart. Opinions, perspectives, programs, attitudes, perceptions, problems. When we encounter these things that make us want to run away, Hebrews says, no, run toward one another in the pursuit of peace. That's how they will know that you belong to the Prince of Peace. And don't just pursue peace with people that you like, people that you naturally get along with. Do you, is that what it says? No, pursue peace with all men, meaning all people. When peace is the goal, what does that look like? How do we know if we're pursuing peace? When we pursue peace, we will gladly deny ourselves for the good of others. And in the process, Jesus makes us more like Himself. When peace is the goal, we will focus on being reconciled to one another rather than being right. When peace is the goal, we will be gracious and patient and long-suffering and flexible in matters where God has given us flexibility, and we will be steadfast in areas where He has not. This is why churches have a confession of faith. We are to maintain the confession of our hope without wavering. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 So we've got to have a consensus on our convictions because a consensus on our convictions is what drives us to fulfill the Great Commission at peace with one another. But in those things where we have flexibility, we don't get hung up on those things. We pursue the peace of God. We defer to one another so that the gospel may go go out and the glory of God may be made known in all the earth. Why should I pursue peace in all my relationships? Because God uses the process to make me holy. And those who are being sanctified will finish the race and we will see the Lord. Those who are not sanctified, those who are not being constantly set apart to look look more and more like God, they're not going to finish the race. They won't see the Lord. It's only those who pursue peace and sanctification who will see His face. Now I want to ask you a question. Pursue peace with all men. The the commentators are divided on whether that means all men in the church, meaning the brotherhood, or just everybody everywhere. But we can go to other passages like Romans chapter 12, and we can see that we are, as Christians, called to pursue peace with all people. Especially in the church, but even with people in the world. Now, did y'all know an election was coming? Are we all aware of that? Are we all aware that, that people are, are, have different opinions on um, just about everything that you could have an opinion on right now? Y- y'all missed that. Well, on, maybe that's just on my Facebook feed. Let me ask you a question. The person who disagrees with you in their gut to the core, do they know you love them? Would they know by reading what you post that you love them? Or would they assume that you wouldn't want to give them a time, the time of day? We are the ones who know the King of glory and the Prince of Peace. He died for your enemy. He died so that your enemy would come to saving faith in Christ. And if they're your friend on Facebook, why would you waste the opportunity that you have to magnify Christ in this moment. In a world that is divided over silly stuff, why wouldn't we be the hope of Christ in the world in every platform that we have? 
It doesn't mean you don't have strong differences of opinion, but is it worth wasting your keystrokes on that when you can point them to a Savior who died to take their place? Are we pursuing peace with all men and the sanctification which comes from the Lord? Secondly, we've got to watch over one another and be on guard against bitterness. In verse 15, we see that Christians are commanded to see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Pursuing peace doesn't mean avoiding conflict or confrontation. It means working through these things together. Pursuing peace does not mean that we don't hold one another, one another accountable for running the race. We do. The Christian life is a community life. And the Americanized loner, I do me, you do you, I'll see you at the finish line one day version of Christianity that holds doctrine at a distance and church relationships very loosely has no foundation in God's Word. The idea of someone who is all in for their church family, all in for the sake of their own soul, all in for the sake of others, that is what Christianity looks like in the New Testament. And it is captured in this command. Keep on seeing to it. It's, it's a present, continuative command. Never stop seeing to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. To see to it means to look carefully into something, to inspect, to look after. As one scholar said, the church is called to watch over one another from the weakest to the strongest so all would grow in holiness and obtain the grace of God. Our task as a church is to help one another reach the finish line, and one of the ways we do that is by being watchful. Staying in the race requires ongoing participation in the grace of God. Grace here doesn't just mean that Jesus died for my sins and saved me. It's referring to the ongoing generosity of God that He continues to give you to fill you with His Spirit in order to pursue Christ in our life. Participation then with a church in the spiritual practices that God gives us is how we continue in His grace. Did you notice this command is given to the whole church, not just the pastor's? He doesn't say, hey, Daniel, you watch out for everybody by yourself. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful that we've got Sunday school teachers and deacons and people who are concerned when they don't see somebody for two or three or four weeks in a row and they wonder what's going on in someone's life. And you might say, well, that's invasive. You shouldn't care what's going on in my life. Well, that's a bunch of hooey right here in God's Word. Look out for one another. Pay attention to one another. Love one another deeply. And you say, well, does God see me? Does God care for me? Yes, He does. He gave you a local church that He surrounds you with people to be looking in your life to keep you running the race until the day of Christ Jesus. That's, that's the kind of God we serve. The whole church should support a culture of watching out for one another. Well, you say, well, that sounds pretty invasive. Look, we're not watchful to tear people down. We are watchful to build one another up as we bump into challenges along the way. When you surrender to Jesus, you surrender your right to be anonymous. The church is commanded to see to it that no one, that's all of us, fails to continue in the preaching and singing, the hearing of preaching 
of God's Word, the singing of God's Word, that no one fails to be generous in their tithes and offerings, that no one refuses to repent or to forgive, that we exalt Jesus in our lives as we're watchful for the Lord's return, living our lives for the glory of our King. And as we do all that, we are especially watchful that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble. Second half of verse 15. Bitterness is the opposite of continuing in the grace of God. When you're continuing in the grace of God, you're mindful of the fact that Jesus died to take your place and you deserve nothing. Bitterness is just the opposite. It's all about self. Bitterness speaks of envy, resentment, or sour hatred of someone else. To pursue peace, bitterness has to be stopped at its root before it becomes a poisonous fruit and defiles everything along the way. Bitterness is toxic because it breeds in a heart that harbors a hurt until the heart cannot empathize with anything or anyone else other than its own hurt. Jesus, by the way, had every right to be bitter. And instead of being bitter, He went to the cross to rescue those who wronged Him. In Deuteronomy 29.18, the root of bitterness is associated with the sin of idolatry. When remaining united for Jesus forces us to step back so that Jesus will be front and center, here's the danger that enters into our minds and sometimes to our hearts. The danger is that we would stop focusing on the glory of Christ who died to make us His and start focusing on our own glory. And what the Bible is doing here is saying that's like becoming an idolater. It's like making myself the God that I worship rather than worshiping God. When bitterness overtakes a soul. Did you know it makes you blind to the poison that comes out of your life? You can't even see it. You can justify everything when you're bitter. Have you ever been bitter? Have you ever been wronged? Or maybe you thought you were wronged but didn't really understand the perspective of the other person or they didn't even realize it and then it just festers in your heart. Why, why do we do that? Like what problem does it solve? What good does it do? And I think the answer, if we're being objective, is it doesn't do any good. So why do we do it? And I've spent all week thinking about that. And I haven't come up with much that's helpful. But I think this might be part of it. Some people like the feeling of come of control. Excuse me. Some people like the feeling of control that comes from being bitter. Sometimes we'd rather be bitter than have the roller coaster of emotions that comes when we actually work through difficult relationships. We can move on, we can stuff it down if our focus is not on Jesus. We can go from feeling betrayed in a moment to feeling bitter. We can go in a moment from being overlooked to making sure that everyone is looking at us. We can go from being misled or feeling misled to trying to make sure that everyone else's life is a mess. We can go from being disrespected in our workplace to trying to do serious damage in the workplace. We can go from being disrespected in the church to trying to do serious damage in the church and to the name of Jesus in the process. Bitterness comes often from feeling like we are owed something. And in the process, we forget that none of us is owed anything but hell. And we all have been rescued by the blood of Christ. And we owe our lives to Him. Jesus paid it all, all to Him. 
I owe. As one scholar writes, bitterness is a sign of serious spiritual trouble. It's an on-ramp to the way of sin, tearing apart the church as it spreads. For this reason, we've got to root out bitterness at the root before it becomes like yeast in dough, flooding everything. To be defiled is to be unclean. And if we allow bitterness to fester and to grow, it, it defiles and it disqualifies people from fellowship with God or His people. But if bitterness, praise God, is addressed early, God can bring hope and healing. So what do we do if there's some bitterness in our heart that's festering? How do we handle it? There's, there's a variety of biblical ways to do this, often by God's Spirit and understanding as we look to the cross and see how much God saved us from, well, how much we wronged Jesus. We can look at the wrong that Jesus absorbed on Himself, and we can just overlook it. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says, It is the glory of man to overlook an offense. We should be a people who, particularly minor things, they just roll off our backs. We're just moving on. Jesus saved me. He died for me. I'm moving on. I'm not going to worry about that. They may not have even realized what was going on. I'm moving on. Other times, we may need to go to the person and share our hearts and pursue peace and reconciliation. What we must not do, church, is allow a root of bitterness to fester and turn into the fruit of our lives. We must not allow a wrong, either real or perceived, to become something that turns us inward rather than upward and outward for the glory of Jesus who died and was raised to make us a team for Him. And finally, we've got to refuse to trade the blessing of eternity for momentary personal pleasure. I don't think it's an accident that Hebrews goes from bitterness to the example of Esau. Because if you linger in bitterness for long, if you allow bitterness to define your life and what you're living for and how you see the world, then eventually it brings this question into mind. Do you even know Jesus? Do you even know the One who encountered every wrong on the way to the cross to save you? Is He really your Savior? In verses 16 and 17, we get the example of Esau, the firstborn of Isaac's twin sons. You remember the story of Isaac? Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob and Esau. Jacob's born second of the two twins, but he ends up getting his brother's birthright because Esau sold his birthright for one bowl of stew. What in the world? I mean, that's just crazy. But the Bible is saying that's what it looks like to persist in bitterness or fail to pursue peace. Or to stay so focused on your own self that you miss the glory of God in the process. It's like throwing away everything you could have for a bowl of stew. Esau was so focused on his immediate satisfaction and what he wanted that he threw away everything that he was entitled to as Isaac's firstborn son. Genesis chapter 25-34 tells us that he despised his birthright. You see, the birthright comes with great privileges, but it also comes with great responsibilities. He was supposed to carry on the family name. He was supposed to invest and pass along to the next generation the ways of God. And for Esau, the responsibilities of being the firstborn were just too great. They were too limiting. They forced him to think about someone and something other than himself. And he threw away his birthright. 
for one bowl of stew. Those who let bitterness reign, those who pursue, who refuse to pursue peace as a way of life and as becoming more like God, they aren't in just a little bit of trouble. They're like Esau. They are like they are at risk of missing out on everything that those who have saving faith in Jesus will receive. So this morning, I want to urge you, church, whatever sin is pulling at you, don't accept the lie that giving into it is worth it. The the two categories of sin that are highlighted here in verse 16 are the categories of immorality and godlessness. The word immoral refers to various types of sexual immorality. We live in a day when the world minimizes sexual sin. But did you know the Bible always maximizes sexual sin and its severity? Why is that? Because sexual immorality not only violates God's law, but it also defiles our bodies, which God created to be temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.18 God has chosen to reveal the gospel to the watching world through the faithfulness of the church in using our bodies as God designed them to be used. Which means that how we conduct ourselves in our marriages matters. It means, gentlemen, that what we see on our computers and on our phones matters. The church is commanded to take the use of our bodies very seriously, and the world wants to wear down our witness. In every category, the world wants to tell you, well, he just had a little one-night stand, or she just fell out of love with her husband, and it doesn't matter anymore. And you can go through all the lists. Uh, infidelity, homosexuality, and then a whole new breed of categories that we're dealing with in our world today. The world wants to normalize sexual dysfunction and the abuse and misuse of our bodies, and God says He won't stand for it. And the question for North Roanoke is, on whose side will we stand? Not just with what we say with our mouths, but in the way that we conduct our lives. Esau was sexually immoral. He was sexually immoral by marrying wives who were outside the family of faith. But immorality, interestingly enough, I think Hebrews is using this word immorality not just for sexual immorality, but as a metaphor for unfaithfulness to God. This word in the Old Testament is often used to speak of unfaithfulness to, to God who wants to be our husband. When we get so focused on ourselves that we stop pursuing peace, stop prizing holiness, give in to bitterness, we risk becoming like the unfaithful spouse who rejects God as their husband and Jesus as their bridegroom. We must not be immoral. We must not be faithless toward God. But secondly, we must not be godless. Godless means to be worldly or profane in our actions, our thinking, or our speech. As a pastor, I get a front row seat to a lot of heartbreaking things. And, and I love the privilege of seeing people who need to be reminded of how much God loves them. I love being able to bring the Word of God to bear in a life where there's a broken heart. But one of the things that breaks my heart most... And I don't suspect I'll ever fully get over it until I see Jesus and He wipes away every tear. Is when I see people come so close to the things of God. They start to attend church. They get in a Bible study. 
they get so close to giving their lives to Jesus, but they never surrender. They never let God break their will and give them a new heart. And then the next thing you know, they're out in the world all over again. And they're more profane and more worldly and more godless than they ever were before. Matthew chapter 12 talks about this. The last of the man was worse than the first of the man. Think about Esau. He was right there. He had the birthright. He had every opportunity to have the blessing of the Father. And he traded it all for a bowl of stew. And he became a godless, sexually immoral son. Esau is given to us as a negative example. All those examples of faithfulness in Hebrews 11, now we get a negative example of Esau. Don't give up the opportunity to have a part in the promises of God for one little moment of pleasure in this world. Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew, and then he wanted to get his father's blessing. You remember that? So he sells his birthright, and then in Genesis 28, a few chapters later, he's like, well, Dad, I still want all your good stuff. I still want to be blessed by you. I just didn't want to live for you and have the responsibility of carrying on the family name and being a noble son, but I sure still want all the blessings of being in the family. You see, Esau wanted to run his own race and get his father's blessing, but it doesn't work that way. Jacob already had the blessing. Esau is therefore a warning to us. There comes a point in which there's no more time for repentance. He came to his father with tears, but they weren't tears of repentance. They were just tears of regret. He regretted that he couldn't get the blessing. The blessing had already been given to his brother Jacob. As Al Mohler says, Esau stands as an example of someone who regrets what he's done, but he does not truly repent of his wrongdoing. Here's the point, church. We can't have the blessing of the Father if we don't live for the glory of Jesus Christ, the firstborn Son. Have you found life in Jesus, who's the firstborn over creation, the firstborn from the dead, the head of the church, that He might have preeminence in all things? Is your life wrapped up in living for Jesus Christ, the firstborn? Because if you're going to have the blessing from the Heavenly Father, the only way to have it is to die to yourself and take up a new life that is in Jesus Christ, the firstborn over all creation. He will make you new. He will fit you for heaven. He will give you new eyes to see the world. He will give you new ambitions and desires to pursue peace, even with the crazy people on your Facebook feed who make no sense to you, and you'll hold back and not type that thing that you really want to type because you want to love them to Jesus. He will change your whole life in a moment if you'll stop hanging on to pride and ambition in your own way and give your life to Jesus. Church, Hebrews is a warning to not miss the opportunity to turn from sin and self-worship and to start trusting in Jesus. Hebrews is not telling us that we can't repent. It's telling us to repent while repentance can still be found. Esau was so wrapped up in his own world, wrapped up in everything that he wanted, he wanted the blessing from the Father without ever respecting the Father. And so when he went to the Father crying about the blessing he couldn't have, he couldn't find the place of repentance. All he could do was have not godly sorrow, but worldly regret. He just regretted what he couldn't get. And I'm here to tell you, if you'll give your life to Jesus, if you'll live for His glory, 
If you'll live for the glory of the Son that the Father sent to rescue you, all the blessings are available. But if you won't turn from yourself and from your sin, while there's still time, there's coming a day when repentance will no longer be able to be found. Jesus speaks of that day. He says when He returns, many will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. The word found in verse 17 is the word from which we get our word eureka. Eureka means, I found it. Praise God, this is great. It's like finding the gold, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Eureka, it's here. Do you think of repentance in that way? I found the opportunity to leave behind my old life and to take up a new life in Jesus. Eureka! The opportunity to repent is still available today. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're still following your own path, running your own race, absorbed in your own life, then I want to encourage you today to repent while repentance can still be found. And join the race that ends at the face of Jesus. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for the challenge that you've given us this morning from your word. Thank you, God, that you have spoken to us, God. I, I am so grateful for the challenge and the reminder that we are to be those who pursue peace because we know Jesus, the Prince of Peace. God, I pray if there's anyone here who's battling a root of bitterness, God, something welling up within them that is distracting them from living for you and causing them to be so focused on themselves that they can't get out of their own way. God, that today would be the day that, that some who are facing that would come and, and maybe even pray here at the front and just lay it down and say, God, today, by your power, for your glory, I'm leaving the bitterness behind. And I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. Lord, thank you that you save Thank you that repentance can be found in Jesus. Move in this place. For your glory, I pray. Amen.